We're going to talk today about uh, regional climate modelling and downscaling. Um, my name is Stephen Alton from the Nansen Centre, and with me is Inga Pitskog, Stefan Sobolowski, and I'm a climate scientist at uh, North Norwegian Research Centre and the Bjorkney Centre for Climate Research. So over the last year and a half in Scandinavia, we've had a succession of um, both extreme weather events, but also what we might term extreme climate events. So in 2018, Norway's snowpack was one of the highest on record. And concerns were building in the water and energy um, directorate, for example, that there was going to be catastrophic flooding when all of this snow started to melt in the summertime and we started getting spring on snow events. Instead, what happened was we had one of the most rapid warmings on record as well in early May of 2018, which wiped out the snowpack with relatively little flooding because it went away so quickly that there was no time for there to be any rain on snow events. Then, after thinking that there's so much water in the system that um, we would be flush with water resources for the entire summer, Scandinavia experienced one of its hottest and driest summers on record. This resulted in drought conditions in much of western Norway. This is a region that gets on average 4,000 millimeters of rain a year, and they had drought conditions in the middle of summer for almost two months, high fire risk conditions. And then in, Sk in Sweden, everybody is knows that there were the forest fires, which devastated large swaths of the northern part of the country and also extended into the south. And then that was followed in western Norway in fall of 2018 with a new record of rainfall of almost 1.8 meters over a three-point over a three-month period. So it's on everyone's mind now that we have this succession and div wild diversity of extreme events over a relatively small part of the globe. This is Scandinavia we're talking about. We're not talking about um, you know, a large area like the, like the continental United States. We're talking about Scandinavia and this wild diversity of extreme events. And the question that arises is, well, is this due to climate change? Is this a taste of things to come? Will these events become more frequent? Will they happen together at the same time, like in sequence, like they did this time? And this requires different tools than the ones that we've been using to assess climate change on the global scale. Stefan, <laughs> what would you say are the biggest sources of uncertainties uh, regarding our projections of uh, future climate changes? So we have a really robust understanding now of climate change on large scales. Um, we're talking continental scales, so whether it will be warmer, wetter, um, uh, over large areas like, say, Western Europe or the Western United States or Northeastern North America, um, where our understanding is more limited is in our understanding of changes at more local scales. So, for example, we just had a winter in Norway here where the snowpack was in many in many areas less than 50% of normal. Um, and it was a very short uh, winter as well, very early, early melt um, and a very late start. And so um, 
question arises whether or not this is a taste of things to come. Is this what we can expect um, in the future? And unfortunately, the modeling systems that we use to get these large-scale continental uh, perspectives are not up to the task of telling us what will happen on more local or regional scales. So, for example, what happens over the Hadangavida for, for Norway, for example, or what happens over the Colorado headwaters for the United States, as another example, or um, Bangladesh as an uh, area that's, our, that's very much susceptible to um, seasonal flooding, but also is intensely reliant on the monsoon circulation system for almost all of its um, economic output in terms of agriculture. So these uncertainties on what we call regional scales um, to local scales, so we're talking tens of kilometers, not hundreds of kilometers, is where the largest uncertainties currently lie. And uh, at the Bjerknes Center, of course, you're working on how to address this issue, and the tools you're using for this are regional climate models. So yes, so at the, at the Bjerknes Center, we work across many different scales, so spatial scales in particular, and time scales. Um, and um, the tools that we are using predominantly in my group are called uh, regional climate models. And what these models uh, enable us to do is to provide highly detailed information about present-day climate and also potentially uh, climate change and how the climate may, uh, may change in the future. Um, and they also are quite useful for obtaining information on uh, shorter temporal timescales as well. So one of the concerns that uh, many actors, both the public as well as private sectors, have about future climate change is whether or not extreme events become more frequent, become more intense, um, last longer, um, and are more destructive. And for that, these events tend to happen quite quickly. Um, and they happen on the time scale of hours, not necessarily days or weeks. And to capture these kinds of events and to do so in a robust way, we need appropriate tools for the job. And these models are, at the moment, the best tools that we have for this job. So the way these models actually work, as I understand it, is you provide them with information from, as you've mentioned, these larger scale models, the global climate models that uh, represent large scale flow and tell you about moisture over Western Europe, for example, and you take this sort of information and you go through a process where you downscale it onto these more local and regional scales using these regional climate models. Right. So the, um, the process is basically that we take these, uh, we take information from a, what we call a more coarse resolution and we feed it into these, into these models. And the, the, this coarse resolution gives us, for example, um, the, the position of the jet stream. So this is something that most listeners will be familiar with from watching their, um, their daily weather forecasts on the TV, um, that, where they show the position of the, the winds at very, very high, um, high elevations above the ground, and it's called the jet stream. And most of our storms and most of our disturbances and most of the weather that we experience tracks along this jet stream. And so our course resolution products can give us that jet stream and its position and the disturbances that travel along it. And then we can feed it into the boundaries of our uh, much higher resolution model, which then provides the impact 
of those events on the more local scales because if we just let the course resolution run then it would put for example um, you know the same rain amounts in Bergen as we would have in Stavanger for example at a very coarse resolution and that's not what we want and we know that's not what happens um, especially when we're talking about climate time scales so averaged over a long period of time so we've been talking now a little bit and we've, we've used the terms coarse resolutions, low resolutions and high resolutions. But maybe we should just define that a little bit for our listeners. Uh, what sort of resolutions are the global models running at? They're running at sort of 100 kilometers or horizontal resolution? Yes. So a good way for listeners to think of how these models work is that they are, of course, a simulation of the real world and they're a, a simulacrum. They're not... Um, we try to make them as complex as possible without making them too complex. Um, and when we talk about coarse resolution, if you think of dividing the world up into a grid, um, a coarse resolution model is about 100 kilometers on a side. Um, 10 years ago, it would have been 250 to 300 kilometers on a side. So computational advances have allowed us to um, get to higher and higher resolutions. Um, these regional models I'm talking about are able to split up the grid spacing into um, tens of kilometers and in some cases even higher spatial resolutions, so single kilometers. So able to resolve features like uh, the western coast of Norway, for example, um, or complex features like the Great Lakes over North America would be another, another example. Well, you, you mentioned the west coast of Norway as being one region, but if you're running at sort of 10 kilometers, the fjords and the coastline around here is, is much finer than that. Some of the fjords are a kilometer across. So how does the model, even a regional model, interpret that? Right. So as I said before, that these models are a simulacrum of reality, right? Mm -hmm. And like any model, if we think of even a toy model, think of an airplane model, right? you can build a very detailed replica of your favorite aircraft, but it's not gonna fly. No. And that's what these models, they build very detailed, can build very detailed replicas of, of reality, and we try to bring them as close as possible, but it's still a model, right? Yeah. Um, and there are some things which we simply cannot capture with these models. So um, interactions are happening at the what we call the microphysical scale. And it's happening on scales where the different molecules are interacting. And we can never reproduce that kind of um, that kind of detail. And we don't want to, actually, because it would take up far too much computer resources and we wouldn't be able to run these kinds of um, tools for a long enough period of time to learn anything about the climate system. So what we do instead is we take those processes that are happening on very, very fine scales and we do something that's called parameterize them. And we, we, we use um, formulas that represent um, these processes and, and as what we call a subgrid scale. Um, and so some of these, some of these things that we, that we use this for are things like convection. And so convection uh, is the process that leads to thunderstorms. So, um, just last weekend here in, in Norway, I think it was last Thursday or Friday, um, Thursday actually, we had lots and lots of convective activity. This was June um, 
sixth, if I remember right. Um, really intense convective activity, thunder, lightning, actually all over Norway. And um, that kind of, those kind of processes, we use these bulk formulas to try to deal with. And um, because the model simply cannot um, reproduce them physically. So, I mean, taking that as a good example, the Voss flooding, this was, I think it was October uh, 2014. Yes. And uh, this is a case which the large scale models, the climate models, would show nothing of that sort of extreme event. The only way to really get at them is something like uh, a dynamical downscaling with a regional climate model. That's correct, yes. They generally cannot get the intensity of these kinds of events correct. Um, and that's that's another area where these models are, are quite are quite useful. So has this particular case study been studied at the Bjarkna Center? Yes, actually, it's one of our um, it's been studied extensively at the center. So it's been studied using both um, an atmospheric downscaling of the event and it's able to reproduce this quite well. And we learned about why it's able to reproduce it well. Um, it's also been studied with additional hydrological modeling um, added onto it to understand how the hydrological system responded to this particular event and um, resulted in the extreme flooding that we that we actually experienced. The models themselves actually, both the, the large-scale models and regional climate models, they actually separate into two halves within them. Um, you have the dynamics, which is represented on the actual grid, and that's uh, resolving features that exist on the grid. So in the large-scale model, that's uh, 100 kilometers, things like the jet stream. But on the regional climate models, where it's sort of 10 kilometer or smaller, you're resolving uh, more of the features with the actual dynamics. But then the other half of the models is this physics section, where you have a suite of parameterizations covering different aspects of uh, physics which are not captured on the grid. So this would be um, convection, microphysics, boundary layer dynamics, and so on. Yes, exactly. Um, and so as we come down in resolution, um, we hope to resolve more and more of the, the actual physical processes that we're, that we're interested in reproducing. Um, and so again, using, using the coastal region of Norway as an example, it's extremely complex. You have lots of interactions between the land and the ocean. We have some mountains, fairly steep ones. They're not very tall, but the sides are extremely steep in that this causes interactions with the flow that generates all of the dynamic weather that we experience in Western Norway on an almost daily basis. Um, and the regional models allow us, to, uh, allow us to represent some of those interactions. Um, in fairly in fairly good detail. Um, and this is really important for us to get an understanding for um, changes in events like, for example, the extreme flooding that happened in Voss maybe about four or five years ago in the fall. Um, that was a 200-year flood event that occurred after getting um, not really such an extreme precipitation event, but it was a lot of precipitation over an extended period of time that occurred. Um, and that cannot be reproduced with these coarse resolution models. You really need to have something that has the complex topography and the interactions between the flow and the, um, um, and the terrain. Okay, so we've talked about sort of uh, downscaling regional climate models more in general. 
perhaps we could talk a little bit about uh, what we're actually doing, uh, what is actually being done at the Bjerknes Center. So uh, what regional climate model do you use at the Bjerknes Center? So we use a tool called the Weather Research and Forecasting um, Modeling System, WARF for, for short. Um, it's developed by the National Centers for Atmospheric Research in the United States in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and it's very much a community model. Um, and in that lies its strength. So as I said about Cordex being a community effort to generate robust information about the climate system, WARF as a modeling tool is a community effort to develop a really robust uh, modeling system to work at the kinds of scales and um, both temporal and spatial that we're interested in, in reproducing. And because of the complexity and diversity of the different geographic regions in which we want to operate, it's really nice to have a community of people working on it from all of these different areas. So rather than have a model that's developed by people in the central United States and the mountain, mountainous areas of Colorado that's tuned to work well in those areas, instead we have a modeling system that has practitioners spread all over the world. So people in Asia, people in Australia, researchers in Southern Africa, researchers in South America, researchers in Norway, for example. And everybody can contribute to, um, to the development of that, of that model. Um, and that community is really a, um, uh, is really a, a big strength of the, of, the, of the tool. So we've talked a little bit about the regional climate models, their strengths and weaknesses, and the actual pros and cons and what needs to be investigated in order to set them up and run them. But let's talk a little bit about you, if you don't mind. <laughs> um, how did you become a researcher? So, that's a fraught question. Um, <laughs> so I am a late bloomer. Um, I actually knew I wanted to be a scientist of some sort from a very, very young age. But then, um, um, actually, my, my very first idea was to be a marine biologist, but that was probably when I was five or six years old and was really interested in sharks and stuff like that, which I'm still interested in, but yeah. Um, but then drifted away from that a bit uh, after, after high school and through my, my undergraduate degree and uh, came back to it when I was actually in my late 20s. So for all of you youngsters out there who are thinking, oh, I don't know what to do with my life. What am I going to do? I don't know. Don't worry. You can always come back to this. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Um, it's basically I came, was deciding on, um, needed to make a change to my uh needed to make a change to my career um, and wanted to do something that was related to the things that mattered most to me. And when I did some introspection, what I found was that what mattered most to me were all things that related back to weather and climate, in particular, um, water cycle. I grew up in New England um, in very much an outdoors-oriented family, hiking, skiing, um, rock climbing, et cetera, et cetera. And all of the things that brought the most joy to me on a personal level in life were being supplied through the earth system and the earth system processes. And so um, I'd been looking at weather since before I really even knew what weather was. And so it made sense to 
come back and try to understand this part of the system in a in a bit more of a um, you know in a, in a more more detailed and robust fashion. Basically, it's another way of having a conversation with nature. So we're talking a bit about uh, the various models, and we've said about the sort of difference there is between the larger uh, climate models. Coarser resolution, and then these higher resolution regional climate models. But uh, you mentioned early on that over the last 20 years or something, the resolution of the global models has gone from sort of two or 300 kilometers down to 100 kilometers. And I think in the future, they're, they're already running some coming down to the sort of 25 kilometer resolution. And at the same time, the regional models have also improved. They're, They've gone from being sort of 50 to 25 to 12, and now they're edging down into these convection resolving one, two, three kilometer scales. So given this sort of shift ever towards higher resolutions, how would you see the sort of uh, future of regional climate modeling? What sort of questions will it now be able to answer? So right now, it's a really exciting time for, for regional modeling, or I should say just climate modeling in general. Um, you know, advances in computational uh, power have enabled us now to come down and start working at what we call convection permitting scales or cloud resolving scales. Um, and what this means is that we are actually able to reproduce physically, not with a parameterization or a... Um, um, yeah, or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, without parameterizations, uh, convective systems and convective storms, such as the ones that we experience during summertime, uh, summertime uh, rainfall events. Um, and this opens up the door to answering all kinds of new questions, like how extremes change in future climate, um, how circulation changes and interactions with the land surface change in, uh, in a future climate. Um, and it allows us to really come down to what we call the local scale and better understand the potential impacts of climate change on the scales that actually matter to people. Because nobody experiences either the average climate, nor do they experience the average climate over, a, over an entire continent. And so the scales at which we have to actually adapt to climate change are the local scales. It's the scales in which we live our lives and in which natural systems are going about their business as well. And so where we're heading right now is towards these local scales, and it's a really exciting time. And I should say also, we are seeing uh, two communities starting to come together, global modeling community and a regional modeling community in ways that um, haven't been possible before, somewhat due to institutional barriers, somewhat also due to the fact that the, um, the differences in the tools were just they were just too far apart. But as you said, that now we have global models that are coming down towards 25 kilometers or so. Um, they are basically at the resolution that regional models were running at five to 10 years ago. We are now at the regional modeling community at these cloud resolving scales. And now we can start to talk together and start to work collaboratively and come up with more um, nuanced storylines of future climate change that integrate the information in a much more robust way that deals with some of the errors that you were talking about, Stephen, previously, where we can actually build our experiments and build our ensembles from um, a basis of physical understanding. 
and instead of what we call up to this point an ensemble of opportunity where we just run a lot of simulations and we hope we get something out of it. Um, I think I see us going into a much more directed uh, kind of experiment design in the future. And, um, and yeah, it's a really exciting time. You mentioned this uh, experiment design. You're actually, I believe, co-leading uh, a flagship pilot study uh, under the WCRP, uh, the World Climate Research Programme. This is to address one of the sort of grand challenges under weather and climate extremes of looking at these uh, convective extreme precipitation events. Right. So we are, I'm co-leading along with a colleague at um, uh, the, the International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, Italy. We are uh, co-PIs on a project where we're investigating convective processes and convective extremes over the Alpine region and southern, uh, southern Europe in the Mediterranean. And this is a first-of-its-kind effort to run these regional models at convection-permitting scales and building an ensemble of these. We have, I think, 23 groups all working on um, simulations. And it's going to be the um, uh, it's it's going to be the very first large ensemble of these sorts of simulations, and it will really allow us to sort of finally answer the question of whether or not um, the extreme precipitation changes that have been indicated by our other modeling systems actually um, come through at these cloud-resolving scales. So specifically that as we go to higher and higher spatial resolution and temporal resolution, we see convective extremes get more intense and that more of the um, change in precipitation comes from the changes in convective, um, convective events. And of course, this has large implications for society, both with respect to um, uh, respect to uh, you know, hazards and and um, destructive force and destruction of uh, of infrastructure, but also for agriculture, for example, and water resources. So this project's due to run, I believe, until twenty twenty one. Yes, that's so correct. Perhaps we'll have you back in a couple of years' time to tell us all about the successes of this project. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Hopefully so. Hopefully so. <laughs> Stefan Sobolowski, thank you for joining us today. Du har nå lyttet til en podcast fra Bjerknesenteret for klimaforskning. Bjerknesenteret er et partnerskap mellom Universitetet i Bergen, Norwegian Research Center NORS, Nansen Centeret for Miljø og Fjernmåling og Havforskningsinstituttet. Musikken er av Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, under Creative Commons Lisens, BY 3.0. Podcasten er redigert av meg, Ingel Pilskog, førsteamenuensis i naturfag ved Høgskolen på Vestlandet.